Heads up that this episode includes language including liberal use of the F-bomb and frank descriptions of sex that some folks might find objectionable. Consider yourself warned. How do you define a good day? For me, if I don't start peeing before my pants are down, that's a good day. If I'm even thinking about peeing, it's already too late. I always assume I have to pee, and I'm always right. My brand of adult pads is called Free to Pee, You and Me. I'm Eva Tenuto. As a child, I grew up keeping family secrets. And as a result, I founded TMI Project, a nonprofit storytelling organization based in Kingston, New York. I'm Micah, someone who is deeply devoted to the community, father of two, and workshop facilitator for TMI Project. This is the TMI Project podcast. Over the last 10 years, TMI Project has collected nearly 2,000 stories from people with a burning desire to write and tell theirs. Here's what we believe. When you share the story you're most afraid to tell, it turns into a superpower because our vulnerability is where we connect. Individually, when we get that story out, the one that we've been keeping to ourselves all this time, it creates a subtle shift in our lives. Collectively, that shift is seismic. In the TMI Project podcast, we're going to profile some of our favorite storytellers and follow their narratives right up until the moment they walk on stage and read their monologues live in front of an audience. Today, we start with the story of Vernon Gillis. I remember the first time I saw her. It was 10 years ago. TMI Project hosted its first story slam at Market Market, a small cafe in Rosendale, New York. It was packed that night. Midway through the evening, this older woman, probably in her 60s, her late 60s, walked up to the microphone. She was small but regal, wearing this fabulous vintage coat. I was thinking, who is she? Where is she from? And then she opened her mouth. Take the F out of life. Put it in fuck where it belongs. (laughs) And what does that leave you with? The lie. Our first slam, and right out of the gate, we've got this lady telling a pretty raunchy story about sex. I was thinking, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Watching the other person licking crumbs off his lips is enough to induce heavy breathing. Shaking off those last drops from his penis in the bathroom with his hand on the wall is fabulously erotic. Because, after all, it is his penis, and soon it will enter all your orifices. Months later, you will begin to notice the drops of urine on the bathroom floor. (laughs) And the smudges from his hand on the wall. And it'll make you fucking nuts. Her name was Verna Gillis. Dr. Verna Gillis a well-known ethnomusicologist from New York City. She killed, and she won the Story Slam that night, even though she had no idea what a Story Slam was, and it was the first time she had ever read her writing in front of an audience. I'd been writing for a while, but Mm -hmm. I hadn't been saying things out loud, and there's something powerful about hearing your voice telling your story. Mm -hmm. 
At Verna's house in upstate New York, it's hard to choose where to look because it's filled with Verna's many collections. Antique dresses, a vintage 45 jukebox, wood carvings, embroidered tapestries, giant paper mache carnival heads from Haiti, and a million unframed photos curling at the edges. I wrote it as a song, and I wrote lyrics, and it's unsingable. I've never been able to tolerate an empty wall. I always say that my first instrument was my scream, but after that, my second instrument was the piano. Home was a mixed bag. My mother was a doctor. She was a very out-in-the-world person. She had come here from Europe. We grew up knowing that my maternal grandmother had been, quote, buried alive by the Nazis. So my mother was a classic rageaholic. You know, hearing her key in the door, you never knew who you were going to confront. It was Verna's father who introduced her to music, an English-as-a-second-language teacher. He grew up in poverty on the Lower East Side, the son of Russian immigrants who had fled to the U.S. in the 1900s to escape the pogroms. My father always wanted to take piano lessons, but my grandmother didn't think it was necessary for a boy. But what he lacked in formal education, he made up for in deep and informed listening. And my father's musical tastes ended at Debussy. Up to that, he knew everything. We'd sit in the car listening to the radio. He knew who was conducting. He knew who the soloists were. Growing up, my father instilled in us the concept that greatness existed. And some people embodied it. Tuscanini. Marian Anderson, Paul Robeson, Arthur Schnabel, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, these were the culture heroes. My life, my, my quest in a certain way was to find that greatness. So Verna's quest began at City College in New York, where she majored in music. That's also where she first encountered Bradford Graves, a Texan, sculptor of limestone, archaeologist, and yes, music lover. You know, and I was actually living with someone at the time that I met him. And we just were hanging out. And then he went off to Israel to work on an archaeological expedition on Masada with Yegel Yadin, who was a general in the army. And I was in bed with the man I was living with at the time. And Brad called to say goodbye, just, you know, goodbye. And when I heard his voice, I started crying. It's all mysterious. So they got married. Uh, we did great things together. We hung out. He took me places. It was interesting with him from the beginning. And then one day, Brad and I were going to a concert at Hunter College, and he saw a sign on a bulletin board that said, Master's Degree in Ethnomusicology. And he said, why don't you do that? Sidebar. In case you're not sure what ethnomusicology is, it's the study of music from the social and cultural aspects of the people who make it. Brad was right. It was the perfect field for Verna. In 1975, I started doing field work and recording music in other places. And one of the first places that we went together was Haiti. My first experience recording voodoo in Haiti, and I'm wearing the headphones and I'm thinking, okay, I mean, oh, you know, I mean, it really, it was visceral. And I felt all the skin on my body shift. And then later that evening, uh, Brad and I went back to the hotel we were staying in, went to sleep, and I wet the bed. 
it had released something in me. Between 1973 and 1979, Verna recorded more than 25 albums. That quest for greatness taking her to places like Afghanistan, Iran, Cuba, Gambia, Ghana, Peru, Suriname, the Mississippi Delta, and this one, which was recorded on Lake Dal in Kashmir. You know, music, it just carried me. In 1979, Verna decided to stop doing fieldwork. Instead, she figured out a way to bring her quest for greatness home when she opened a 2,000-foot performance space on West 52nd Street called Soundscape Presents, one of the first multicultural music venues in New York and a playground for musicians across cultures to come together. The New York Times Magazine called her the melting pot muse and the closest thing the genre known as world music has to a doyen. In a certain way, all the musicians that I've worked with, I've fallen in love with, with what they do. You know, and I remember those moments with each one of them. When I was a child, one of my fantasies, you know, we all have fantasies, was that I wanted to be a conga player. And when I was 17, I bought two congas. I sat in my little apartment and played along to records. So there was this night at Soundscape and Daniel Ponce played. Con cariños, solo para ti. With love, only for you. Danielle Ponce arrived in New York City in 1980. An involuntary Marilito, or one of the approximately 135,000 people forced out of Cuba in what was known as the Mariel Boat Lift. He was my fantasy of myself. This macho guy, I mean, but when he played, he was just elegant and beautiful and light. Verna became his producer, and with Soundscape as his musical home, Danielle recorded, toured, and performed with the Gonzalez Brothers, Paquito de Rivera, Laurie Anderson, Herbie Hancock, Yoko Ono, the Rolling Stones, and Bootsy Collins. And by 1982, he was soloing at Carnegie Hall. It was the best creative relationship in a certain way because it was working with Danielle that I discovered what I can do. In Verna's quest to find the culture heroes, the ones her father had introduced her to, she had discovered a talent for making sure the world would know about them as a promoter, manager, and producer. But there was a flip side. The worst part of it was the obsessive nature of our relationship. He was the dark side of my moon in many ways. I don't know if I knew it then, when you're, when you're caught up in something, it's difficult to have that perspective. Verna grew up in a home burdened by the legacy of Nazi genocide. She escaped by leaving at 17. She got her own apartment, started playing the Congos, married Brad, and went searching for the culture heroes. She was free. But the past has a way of finding you, no matter how successful you are. While we can't know Danielle's side of the story, we can guess that the horrors of poverty and dislocation coupled with near-instantaneous American fame, couldn't have been very easy. Danielle and Berna were two traumatized people under a whole lot of pressure, so it's not surprising that their professional relationship soured. But at the same time, 
relationships with other clients were beginning to unravel. Contracts weren't getting renewed. Verna put everything into her career. It was her shield, but that wasn't working anymore. I didn't have a life beyond Mm. my work. Mm -hmm. I had no identity. And going into menopause, it's hormonal havoc. It'll kick you in the ass. I always knew that I was like an alcoholic, but with food. And as I say, I was the only person I knew who could eat on cocaine. You know what I mean? The, the addiction overran everything. everything. The thing about addiction is that you can live with it for a really long time. Sometimes it feels like an ally, something to get you through. But all the time, it's really ravaging you. And as easy as it is to keep things status quo, sometimes your hand is forced. That's what happened with Verna. But before she could move forward, she had to look back. You know, when I was growing up, being overweight was considered a moral issue. My mother also had an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. My body became her domain. Mm -hmm. And from very young age, she put me on diet. Then at age 22, a doctor put me on amphetamines. I lost 100 pounds in eight months. And actually, after I lost the weight, he said, now you can just eat normally. Normally, okay. What did I know about (laughs) About normally? Exactly. You know, I had all these emotions, and I needed to put words to them, to make sense of them, to channel them somewhere, where all I really needed to do was just scream. Verna and Brad's marriage had lasted through the ups and downs of the soundscape years, her addiction, and the aftermath. The key to their success, according to Verna, was their independence. Two ambitious artists with demanding careers, they spent on average one night a week together. We had our version of the unplugged Sunday. We didn't get dressed, and Brad played music the whole day. You know, it was nice. It was the day we were married. It was 1998. We were at Asia Society in New York going to hear a concert of Kowali music. And um, he flew down the stairs and died of a heart attack. It was that way. Some people said it must have been terrible not to be able to say goodbye. And at that time in my life, I thought, how does one do that? You know, it's kind of like learning to walk again. After she won that story slam in Rosendale, Verna signed up for one of TMI Project's workshops. That's where she started to write the story of Brad's death. And she talks about it in the monologue we helped her create. Here she is reading it, live on stage. My husband, Brad, had a heart attack and died. I was more present at the time of his death than I had ever been when he was alive. His death got my full attention the way nothing else ever had. He was 58. I was 55. We had been together for 34 years. Death has a life of its own. In 1989, Verna moved to upstate New York, 
and reconnected with Roswell Rudd, a jazz trombonist she had worked with at Soundscape. His wife had had a stroke, and so Verna and Roswell started hanging out together. Like as she says, grieving buddies. And ever so beautifully, that friendship bloomed into Verna's second great love story. And as I've said often, you know, we had more in common with each other at that time than with anyone else. Roswell and I had a full immersion life because we lived together, we worked together, we did everything together. It was a different, different existence. When I met Verna, she and Roswell had already been together for 11 years. It was around the time I co-founded TMI Project with Julie Novak. Julie and I loved going to their house for dinner and hearing her stories about traveling the world, founding Soundscape, and the recording projects that she and Roswell were still producing together. It was like a fun house, a crazy fun house with Verna playing the piano and Roswell on the trombone. He was just the most easygoing, relaxed, and loving person. Their relationship was so much about creating music together and their community of friends and family. But then Roswell was diagnosed with prostate cancer and everything changed, as it does. The trips to the city for treatment, the bills, the stress, the anxiety, and the dark parts of ourselves that serious illness exposes. The horror of it all. But throughout his illness, Roswell continued to play music all the time. In fact, they even wrote a song about the experience. It's called Awesome and Gruesome. In the music video, they're standing in a forest together. Roswell is on trombone and Verna is singing, wearing gold horn-rimmed sunglasses and an ermine stole. Awesome and gruesome, what a fucking twosome. This is a ranthome. I'm gonna ransom bolder and bolder. We are the olders. Cancer is gruesome and on the loosome. Awesome, he's gruesome. Had biopsy bluesome. Got me in my prostate zone. Moved to the bladder. I'm not alone. Mortality sightings on the rising. But the disease kept progressing, and when he stopped playing music, we knew he was almost done. Roswell died three weeks later. Once again, Verna did the bravest thing imaginable. She wrote about it. Roswell is diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. Mentally rearranged instantly. Free fall emotionally. The man I love and live with has changed. He is now a man living with cancer. We all cohabit. Cancer has moved in. It is never moving out. We both regress. He screams at me. He fucking screams at me. There's not room in the house for two screamers. Cancer enters us into a huge and ever-expanding club that no one wants to belong to. Oh, for the day when the C word meant cunt. You know, sometimes you learn what you think by what you say or by what you write. You know what I mean? It helps you unfold. It helps you download. 
It gets us out of ourselves. Anything that helps you find your voice in whatever it is. Over the years, Verna wrote and performed multiple stories with us. Eventually, I worked with her to bring it all together for a solo show, Tales from Geriatric Park on the Verge of Extinction, which won Best Comedic Script at the United Solo Festival in 2014. Most recently, we brought her back for a command performance at our annual fundraiser. Here she is reading her full monologue in October 2019. I gave myself a big surprise party for my 75th. If you don't think turning 75 isn't one big fucking surprise, just wait. I will no longer die young. One thing to cross off my anxiety list. Here I am, closer to dead than to alive, wondering what will be my last place on earth and what will take me out, knowing that one day the last thing I say will be the last thing I said, and vice versa. (laughs) The future closer to the present than it's ever been. Navigating loss and less on the rougher seas of older, my beloved partner of 19 years died in 2017. Life after death is about those of us who remain. Death is a life-changing experience. In the last stages of his decline, I could judge my emotional health by whether or not I got it on with telemarketers. (laughs) One day it was a rage aria. I slammed down the phone on the last motherfucker piece of shit. The phone rang again. He was calling me back. Suck my cock. Suck my cock! I started seeing a grief counselor. I asked her about her group. I'm not sure they'd get you, she said. Get me, I asked. Well, you do curse a lot, she said. That's true. I do. I acknowledged. However, I'm socialized, I'm civilized. I don't tell anyone, go fuck yourself, or fuck you, unless they deserve it. My point of sanity was in not having children, and the children I never had are grateful. (laughs) A friend posted a photo on Facebook of a group of us from the previous evening. I click on the link, look at the photo, and I'm not in it. And then I see a woman wearing exactly the same clothing I had been wearing. A holy fucking shit moment. (laughs) The next day I see my nephew and I ask him, 
When you look at me, do you see someone you recognize? <laughs> yes, he replies, looking at me blankly. Later, he emails to say that often he doesn't understand where I'm coming from. <laughs> Wait 30 years, he will. I'm going to tell you the worst thing you can say to an older person. You've never looked better. <laughs> I asked my gynecologist, why do I still have a vagina? <laughs> I don't know, she said. <laughs> At this time of life, my vagina is more or less like a vestigial organ. I'd like to trade it in for something more useful, like a larger bladder. <laughs> when I was a child, I thought that old age was an affliction. I would see groups of old people sitting outside on chairs. They looked shriveled. They had their own particular smell. I would hold my breath when I passed them, not wanting to catch whatever it was that made them look that way. One day, perhaps, a very young child will hold her breath as she passes me. <laughs> the 11-year-old daughter of a friend was visiting, and she told me that her parents will not allow her to have an iPhone. They think she's too young. She then looked at me quizzically and said, how old were you when you got your first iPhone? <laughs> 65, I replied. <laughs> she looked stunned for a minute, and then we both got hysterical laughing. She hadn't realized there was a time before iPhones. Marijuana is the one addiction at which I draw the line. No way am I giving that up. <laughs> Mind altering, you bet. Good idea. I find that my mind doesn't work in mysterious ways. When I'm stoned, I don't get the munchies. I reserve domain names. My most recent is shitgoddamnmotherfucker.com. There's a song in there somewhere. My new practice is called mindlessness. I tried mindfulness, however, if you knew what my mind was full of, you wouldn't recommend it for me. My segues have become confidential. I could always keep a secret, and now I keep it from myself. <laughs> I know that just because I don't remember something doesn't mean it didn't happen. And just because I remember doesn't mean it did. 
long-term memory is part of this time of life. So I suddenly remembered, and now will share with you the story of my first blowjob. <laughs> I was 13. He was 14. He loved it. <laughs> I have some new names for bands of olders. The dry vaginas. Los impotentes. The post-sexuals. Game of groans. I have discovered the cure for hypochondria. Live long enough, and it all becomes real. <laughs> Everything is as it never was. What happened to the burning bush that used to be between my legs? All I know is the bald eagle has landed. <laughs> the hairs on my legs made off with my libido, and the hairs under my arms have migrated to my chin. <laughs> my new bra size is 36 long. <laughs> the older I get, the faster my skin is separating from my bones. I realize that if I were to stand on my head, I would suffocate. <laughs> However, if I could have stood on my head, my whole life would have been different. 60 is the new 60. 77 is the new 77. We are the olders. I'll talk to that. At this very moment, all of us here are the oldest we have ever been. After a lifetime as a producer promoting the careers of other artists, Verna found greatness again, this time in herself. It's being engaged. You know, I think that that's the bottom line, is you find something that really engages you. You know, that sense of connection, the kind of thing that keeps you from floating out into the atmosphere. In 1957, TV personality Steve Allen gave an interview to Cosmopolitan magazine. He recounted a recent conversation in which he told a friend that the subject matter of most comedy is tragic. The friend said, do you mean to tell me the dreadful events of the day are fit subjects for humorous content? Steve Allen said, no, but they will be pretty soon. Howdy. <clears throat> this may turn out to be National Smoked Ham Week or something. In other words, jokes about the things that depress us are funny, so long as a certain amount of time has passed. Steve Allen turned it into a little formula. Tragedy plus time equals comedy. 
So that's the theme. For the remainder of the series, we'll be sharing a collection of humorous monologues about things that definitely weren't funny at the time. I always say that I know I'm in deep shit if I don't want salad and I can't laugh. Laughing is an indication to me that it's okay. Keep listening for our next episode. I'm Eva Tenuto. And I'm Micah. This episode was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston, written, edited, and produced by Haley Downs, and mixed by Marlon Barry. Our Director of External Affairs is Sarah DeRose, and our Operations Manager is Blake File. Special thanks to Radio Kingston, Ida Hakala, Nate Brogan, Manuel Blas, and Kashka Glowaska. And last but not least, thank you, Verna Gillis, you magnificent woman. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. For a full list of featured songs, visit tmiproject.org backslash podcast. We will also find a special writing prompt so you can start telling your story. Here's the part where we ask for your help. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners. Help us continue to create radically true stories that have the power to change the world. Make a donation today. And if we've inspired you to tell your own story, join us this summer at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Micah and I will be teaching a TMI Project True Storytelling Workshop August 23rd through 28th. You can find the details on our website, tmiproject.org.